welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Hello, my name is Anthony Diana. I'm a partner here at Reed Smith, and I will be moderating the latest M365 and 5 series on accessibility for the visually impaired in M365. And here we're, we're going to be talking about the accessibility features and sort of a description of the accessibility features for the visually impaired in M365. And then also issues such as, you know, the legal, regulatory and operational issues with which organizations may have for uh, providing these features. With me today are Emily Diamond from PNC, James Hart from Lighthouse, and Angie Matney from Reed Smith. Just a disclaimer before we begin, the views expressed today are only attributable to the speakers and not with the organizations where the speakers work. Okay, so let's begin. So James, let's just start with, um, if you could give some high-level description of what are the uh, accessibility features for the visually impaired that is associated with M365. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So, uh, so there's a number that are included uh, within within M365, but actually kind of embedded as well into into the Windows operating system as well. So we, we want to touch on on some of those some of those components. And um, I, th- I think the big one for today's discussion will be uh, screen readers. So that's really for for visually impaired users to be able to navigate around their system and to be able to um, you know, interact with things like the start menu and, and file explorer and things like that. But we'll, we'll come back to that. We also want to have a look at um, probably text to speech, which is obviously reading out the actual documents themselves. That is, uh, as as well as maybe being a component of some of those screen readers, it could actually be just embedded into the into the documents themselves as well. So things like Word Online will allow you to do that type of thing. I think it's it's important to call out that. You know those features only work uh, if you've got quite good uh, content to work with. So there's uh, things in M365 uh, such as mail tips um, and office accessibility checkers that will actually prompt users to say there's there's a an issue with the accessibility of this. Maybe there's an image in there without kind of embedded text or or the alt text within there. So there's some really good capabilities around that. You've also got things like color filters. So for for people who have color blindness um, you know it's really helpful to be able to change the, the color scales there to make it easier to, to tell the definitions between uh, the different colors there's some technology to actually flip it to uh, grayscale so if, if if users find that more useful you can you can flip the entire display to grayscale or actually completely uh, invert that as well and that'll invert the entire environment those tools for the for the uh, inversion i see those similar to kind of being able to set up dark mode and light mode within a lot of the apps. You can set system uh, defaults. And that, again, is going to assist in um, in kind of being able to tell or differentiate between the, the text backgrounds. And I see a lot of, if you've ever seen that, a lot of the, the programmers tend to like the black theme, you know, black screen with white text uh, versus the other way around. And there's a couple of other, other tools as well. So Office Lens, um, not specifically M365, but something that Microsoft offer to, to be able to uh, kind of scan documents and automatically convert those, really assist with things like screen readers. To be able to kind of use some voice recognition just to, to call out, tell me, and then it will use the, the prompt within M365 uh, to actually take you to a, to an area that you can very quickly access all of your tools from within that. 
that one tell me window. And then the last thing there is really around um, seeing AI um, and, and the narration around that. So we'll, we'll come back to that one at the end, hopefully. But I, I think it's probably worth, um, you know, I've, I've, I've not specifically worked with any of the screen readers, um, but I wonder whether I, Angie might have some better use cases and some stories around that. Sure, James. Thank you. I, as a blind attorney, I do use a screen reader every day in essentially every job task that I perform. And I actually have a few screen readers on my PC, including Narrator, which is Microsoft's own screen reader. Often I use another screen reader called JAWS just because I have been using that for many years and and have sort of the most facility with that one. But Microsoft in building a screen reader into the operating system has done something great because it does make it easier for blind and vision impaired people to access parts of the operating system or access things, you know, at an earlier point in, in certain processes, if you will. So what a screen reader does, as James pointed out, it will let you navigate around your screen, know what menus you're interacting with, and so forth. And then it will also let you read and edit documents, emails, and other features. And it will let you browse the, the internet. But a screen reader to work properly does depend on the condition of the underlying content to some degree. And so, for example, if you have an email with a screenshot, sometimes the screen reader may not really be able to pick up what is in the screenshot. And in fact, sometimes it may not even alert you that a screenshot is present. But there are ways that you can tap into certain screen readers to cause them to produce more information on that screenshot and have it attempt to recognize and read that out. And some of these technologies are more developed than others. But that is sort of the basic view of how a screen reader might be used, you know, by a professional on a daily basis. And, and I don't know if anybody, Angie or James, you know this, but in terms of like, I'm thinking about teams and the like where there's going to be a proliferation of emojis and you know, images and the like that people are using Giphy's memes, all of that. Is that, is the screen reader help with that type of content? Uh, yeah, it, it definitely can. And I have seen more and more uh, with, as screen readers are updated, they will have descriptions and labels programmed in for many emojis. So, you know, so that can definitely be helpful. I will say that sometimes one thing to keep in mind is that when a screen reader is presenting content, it can be in a very linear fashion in that you don't have exactly the same experience of somebody who quickly glances at the screen and takes in a lot of information. So you kind of have to, you may proceed through it more linearly. Sometimes when the screen changes or when people post things, including, as you mentioned, with emojis, the screen reader will interrupt what it's doing and kind of read that aloud so that you can have immediate access to it. Um, having said all of that, one of the things that I do with my screen reader is I really crank up the speed so that it, I've been told it, it doesn't always uh, sound like human speech when 
it's happening because it goes very fast. And so that does let me, even if I do have to do a little bit more scrolling to perceive what's on the screen, it lets me get at it a little bit more quickly. Interesting. So do you want to give us an example? Sure. I am going to going to try to give you an example of the screen reader on my PC. Let's see if we can do that. Uh, right now it's coming through my headset, so I'm going to reroute that. So this, if you are able to tell, this is essentially what my screen reader sounds like as I use it on a daily basis. And for this, I'm going to read through parts of the invite, the calendar invite that we circulated to record this podcast. This tells me who the meeting was from. And this tells me the date, Wednesday, 824. Oh no, sorry. This is tells me, telling me when the, the uh, invite was sent. And it tells me that the subject is the Tech and Data podcast recording. And that was the list of recipients of the meeting. So if I wanted to slow that down a little bit, now you may be able to tell when it reads the subject of the meeting. Tech and Data podcast recording. But if I had to listen at that slower speed all of the time, it would be really hard to get in a very much work done. So I do speed it up quite a bit. Wow. Okay. That is amazing. And then when you go that fast, I couldn't understand anything. So Not a word. Not a word. Amazed, like a say, I've, I've been told it does not sound like human speech. Um, no, it didn't. It didn't at all. Fascinating. <laughs> fascinating. So Emily, so thinking of it from a business perspective and sort of an organizational perspective and dealing with these visually impaired um, accessibility features. What what are what are organizations thinking about? I think first and foremost, they're thinking about how do we provide an environment to help you know people get the tools that they need um, to do their jobs and how to implement that um, you know at a reasonable level. How to kind of organize the rollout of this kind of information. Do people need permissions for certain um, products, et cetera? And, and how is that all governed? So that that's one question, right? How do you make that practical and useful to people? And then looking at it from an e-discovery perspective, which is where I come in, is what kind of data is being created through the use of these tools? Where is it stored? How long is it kept? Um, and that those are questions that, you know, you have to apply to each product individually because, you know, each, as Angie mentioned, she uses a couple of different screen readers and each one's going to, you know, act a little bit differently. So I think you need to look at it from the perspective of is any new data being created? If a screen reader is reading existing information on a screen, like, like Angie just showed us with an email, you know, that's information that that is traditionally preservable and collectible in an e-discovery world. But as she talked about with um, screenshots or images perhaps that are inserted in a document, if the screen reader is using AI to describe that screenshot or to add information to it, that's not necessarily information that you're going to you know, capture through a traditional e-discovery preservation or collection process. So what do you as the organization need to think about in terms of making sure that that information is preserved or collected if you need it? You know, we talked about Microsoft's screen reader is is called Narrator. 
that offers, you know, a little bit more perhaps comfort as it interacts with other Microsoft platforms, but, you know, another outside third-party application might act, you know, totally differently. Yeah. And, and as we all know, Microsoft isn't always forthcoming in its description of our products um, in terms of where, where the data, what, what are they doing with the data? Where does it go and the like? So that's always a challenge. And Emily, when you're, I guess when you're thinking about M365, because obviously one of the things we've talked about on these podcasts is generally M365 products are constantly changing. And uh, we've seen it certainly that, that Microsoft isn't always thinking about you know, compliance, any discovery issues, and even sometimes privacy issues associated with their products. But accessibility seems to be as another sort of level of that, right? Because, you know, I'm just fascinated about when Angie, like when I heard how that screen reader goes, that like, I just, I just hard for me to understand how particularly where Microsoft is pushing people to use images and, and emojis and stuff like that, how that may impact accessibility generally when it becomes less text oriented and more Mm -hmm. um, image oriented, I guess, in terms of, you know, communication. Yeah. And I think that's something we we struggle with just in general with, with the rollout of technology. I mean, they always say that the, the law is the last to catch up, right? So there, you know, Microsoft is building products that it wants its users to use practically. And, and they have a, you know, a slew of, accessibility features that we've been talking about, we'll talk about more, that do really good things and that are are helpful to people and hopefully will continue to get better over time. But, you know, the the compliance and regulatory and legal aspects of those products are not always at the forefront. Um, so we, you know, are, we find ourselves in a place of, of trying to catch up again. And that's that's not a new place for, you know, legal or, or compliance professionals. And, and so, Angie, just moving towards more of the privacy and accessibility legal implications of this, these suite of products, what, what should people be thinking about? I think it's really important to consider the privacy implications and in terms of what obligations you might have to a user of those products um, and again, to try to develop as much of an understanding as possible of the different types of data that are being collected and how they're being processed. One interesting issue is that as a blind person, I navigate everything with my keyboard. Generally, I don't use a mouse. And then, of course, my systems, my computer, my phone are using screen readers. There have been instances where app developers capture this information and they may use this information to modify the range of choices or options or menus that are available to me or make other changes to the experience that's presented. There have been documented instances of this in the past and this can be beneficial as well as troubling. For example, it could be the case that based on what is being able to be gleaned about how I operate my machine, a, an app determines that I'm blind. It may decide that I might not be interested in something that it perceives as inherently visual, for example, designing an avatar, and it may eliminate that from my menu choices. Or it may, the developer may have decided to eliminate that because 
they feel that the process of making the avatar is not accessible and they don't want to essentially, you know, they know that if many people try to use the experience, it will not be accessible. But I've, the decision of mine, whether or not to engage in that activity is taken away. If, if my screen reader use is used to determine what I can actually do in the app. On the more positive side, it could be used to present me with helpful information or hints or things that might not be apparently um, or immediately obvious to me as I'm using an app. For example, keystrokes to perform certain features. An app can be programmed to announce these or give this information to a user that it determines is using a screen reader. Where the implications for this could become interesting is that with some of the new privacy laws coming into effect in 2023, disability is considered related to health status or could be. And these privacy laws have uh, restrictions on how you can use that data without the user's consent. So it is we certainly hope that over time, uh, if app developers decide to offer modifications to the experience based on whether they can determine through usage whether that person has a disability, that a lot of this would be done with the user's consent. I personally might consent to a situation where I could receive hints about operating a program that would be customized to me as a screen reader user. But I wouldn't want the, the app to be determining which aspects of the program I had access to to begin with. Yeah, and I, and I guess I want to emphasize this because I think this is fascinating. So these apps, and I assume it's Microsoft can do the same thing, is basically based on your use of the keyboard and the way you basically use their product, they're making a determination that you're visually impaired and then altering the product for you. I mean, I think that's fascinating, but lots of implications there. I don't know. Emily, if you have any thoughts on that, um, as an organization, how would you deal with that? Because obviously that could be a major privacy issue if Microsoft yeah. is actually collecting, in essence, health information and gleaning that from the use. Right. And then I was just thinking, what implications does that have to an organization, right? If, if Is it Microsoft collecting that information about its users? Does the company have any of that information stored about its users? And what are the implications there, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. James, I want to talk a little bit about, we talked a little bit about the seeing AI narration. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so this, again, it doesn't necessarily fall under uh, M365, but it is an application that, that Microsoft are, um, are, should I say, in the process of developing, that there is a version out there that you can use. Um, my understanding of the tool is that you can essentially turn on the camera uh, on say your smartphone and you can point it in the direction of maybe you're walking down the street and it's going to it's going to use ai so that ai it's using is it's going to take that data and put it into the cloud to process that and identify visual elements and then it's going to convert that send that back to the phone and then read that out to the user as well so to be able to kind of navigate around a new environment it's almost like a, a screen reader but but in the natural world when you're walking around it's going to kind of pull out those details and send it to you I think from my perspective, the risk there that I see is that you know, what information you're actually sending to the cloud um, when it's up there, kind of what, what can they do with that? Are you, in, are you in your home when you're doing that? What type of information is being shared? And so there's, there's some aspects of kind of around data privacy there that I would kind of consider 
something we need to look at. But um, I think it's a great function, supports a specific need. Um, and I think even, even Angie, I, th I think you mentioned that, that you've used that and actually you use it you have used it in, in in support of sometimes when narrator or was it jaws has kind of not worked properly for you so you're able to use another product to support you yeah so some really good points um so occasionally as is the case with many pieces of software uh your screen reader will crash and when that happens historically unless we have a sighted person around to sort of call and, and take a look we as blind people may not know what the issue is or what has gone on. And as someone who has done a lot of remote working in, during the pandemic, when these crashes have happened, I don't have a human, uh, a human screen reader, if you will, handy at all times. So I can use an app like Seeing AI to give me an idea of what, if anything, is on my computer screen at the time using its camera. The privacy implications are interesting because in that situation, I may not actually know what, I mean, well, I don't know. That's why I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is on my screen. Do I have something up that I would prefer not to, to go into the cloud? Do I have a sensitive email that I, I don't, you know, that I really want to be careful about how it's processed? And the same could be true for paper documents. Seeing AI can do a super great job at reading paper documents. And I use that both personally and professionally, but I don't always know what paper I am about to read when I invoke the app. So having a better understanding and of how this works would be uh, would be helpful. Now, seeing AI does do some on-device processing, you know. So sometimes I will put my phone into airplane mode when I am checking things out. So at this point, that can be done with on-device processing, but as is often the case for people with disabilities, we have to make a choice whether to prioritize privacy or accessibility at this point. And so the, the thing is, maybe I don't have as clear of a view into how apps like Seeing Eye or others that I might use will process certain information, but at some point, I have to make a determination that I need access and may decide that I'm going to proceed because otherwise I cannot independently do a task. Yeah. And I think, again, Emily, I'd like to your thoughts on this, but I think one of the things I think is we're going to see as a theme in all of this is, as you said, Angie, you know, you are making the determination of balancing privacy and accessibility. And then the question becomes as an organization, who makes that decision, right? Is it the person? Because obviously you could be looking at client data as well, right? It could be European data when you're doing this. So who, who makes the decision as to whether privacy or accessibility wins, I guess, in the end, in terms of that balance? Is it, is it the person or is it the client? Is it the organization? I don't know if anybody has any thoughts. Right. Emily? Well, and I, I think when you're looking at an organization and how an organization manages its data, right? There are applications that are vetted and approved and then access is approved, you know, for certain individuals, et cetera. And talking about something like seeing AI, which may be, you know, as Angie just said, may be necessary for somebody to, you know, navigate through their job, let alone their everyday life. That's not controlled by the company, right? That's just an independent app. So, that data is not 
considered in a company's, you know, grand plan of its privacy and security and e-discovery processes and protocols. So, you know, that is another risk to consider because that that data is now outside of of what you as a company are are trying to control. The other thing I thought was interesting when I was when I was reading, sorry, Anthony, just to add one more nuance to this um, and going back to the privacy aspect is that there are demos online of seeing AI and they talk about being able for the, you know, the app to recognize different um, currency. So different, you know, us bills, barcodes. So someone could pick up a product and, and scan for the barcode and find out what the product is that they're holding scan for certain descriptions of people. You know, so you're looking at a, a 30-year-old person who is smiling um, and then file that information away. You could name that person, you know, in your phone, et cetera. So going back to what Angie was saying about, about you know, these companies gathering data about their users, you know, what other kind of information are they gathering by the kind of products you use, the people that you are with, the names of the people that you are with, right? Um, and where is all that and, and how is that used about you and your profile in the future? Yeah. And just one final point is I think we're sort of closing an end and this has been fascinating, but I just think in terms of the privacy aspect of it is, you know, right now, a lot of people are focused on personal devices. And I guess these are in a lot, a lot of ways, personal devices, particularly some of these apps. I don't know if firms have and organizations have like approved devices for accessibility, you know, so you can't use WeChat or whatever. Do they say things like don't use, you know, seeing AI narration because it goes to the cloud and for client, you know, for business documents or whatever, we don't want it in the cloud. Again, I don't know if that's happening. Probably it should, it sounds like, um, that someone should be vetting these to, you know, address the points that we're talking about, whether it's private security, e-discovery. Um, it seems like organizations should be actually thinking about what tools they're visually impaired um, people are using just to make sure that they understand all the risks. Um, but I think this is fascinating. So thanks, everybody, for, for listening in. This is a great conversation. Stay tuned. We're going to have additional accessibility in my M365 discussions um, in the coming months. So thanks, all, everybody, for joining. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and ReedSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReedSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.